and do not submit again to your yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take note of you, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by another. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Good evening. It's good to be here with you tonight. Today, as Tommy alluded previously in the service, uh, is Palm Sunday. Today is uh, the beginning of Holy Week. Um, for centuries, uh, Christians have taken this day to remember Jesus' triumphal entry through the gates of Jerusalem. Jesus, who had spent most of his life in the northern part of the country, the Galilean region, comes to Jerusalem for his final week. Uh, Jesus enters the gates of Jerusalem. He's uh, greeted by an exciting crowd uh, that um, are waving palm branches and are laying their cloaks on the road as he is riding a donkey through the gates of the city. It's in this uh, week that Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with the disciples. Uh, on that Thursday, after celebrating the Last Supper, he goes to the garden. There, he is arrested. He is taken to the high priest's home where he is judged, condemned. On Friday, he suffers, he is crucified and buried before sundown, and on Sunday morning, he raises from the dead, and that is the pillar of our faith. But what's interesting is in that last week, actually before the week is even over, the same crowd that hailed Jesus as king that greeted him with joy in the streets, was now asking for his execution because Jesus failed to deliver on the change that they expected as a people. They as a people expected political change. They as a people expected social reforms. But Jesus had come to bring a different type of change. The change that Jesus was bringing into the world, not only into Jerusalem, but into the world, was far beyond their imagination. It's the change that <clears throat> many of us have experienced today. And here's the cool thing. Those who have experienced this powerful change that Jesus has ushered into the world can genuinely, can genuinely call him king. Now, what's 
uh, we're, we're in the context of this series of sermons in uh, the book of Galatians, right? And uh, we are contrasting the power of the gospel with uh, religion. We're showing you in the book of Galatians why the gospel is this sort of third way of life. So there is irreligion, there is religion, and then there is the gospel. What many people think Christianity is, is religion. Christianity is not really about religion. Christianity is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're encouraging throughout this series that every one of us would lose our religion and cling into our relationship with Christ, initiate a relationship with Jesus Christ. And one of the things that uh, the gospel uh, is uh, so different from religion is how the gospel uh, presents, how the gospel uh, portrays change, this idea of change and transformation. Um, uh, Tonight, we are going to look at that. You know, the gospel is utterly different than religion when it comes to the approach to change. Uh, The gospel's vision is different. The gospel's power is different. The gospel's aim is different. And the gospel's fruit, the fruit that the gospel produces in us is different. So tonight, as we think about this topic of change, the change that Jesus has ushered into the world, uh, let's look at what it looks like in terms of its vision, its power, its aim, and its fruit. So first, its vision. Uh, I think you remember a sermon that was preached maybe a couple weeks ago. Maybe you don't, but it was in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, the Apostle Paul is contending with these Galatian believers about not letting go of the gospel that they had once received And the Apostle Paul is reminding them of the change that they had experienced. They were once slaves because they were under uh, the weight and the burden of the law. And now, with the coming of Christ, they had been made children. And uh, the Apostle Paul is saying, I want you to cling on to this reality because you have been made a new person in Jesus Christ. See, while religion promotes reformation. The gospel promotes transformation. See, the approach of the gospel to change is transformation, not reformation. In other words, uh, religion comes to you and says, hey, what we have to play with in you is not so bad. And if you would just fall with the agenda, then you will experience a better version of yourself. But the gospel says God is desire, God's desire, God's vision is to make something completely new out of your life, something completely different. And this is consistent with the whole language of transformation that you read in the Bible, the power of God coming in to transform. You know, in the Old Testament, in the prophetic literature of Jeremiah and Isaiah and the prophet Ezekiel, God shows up through the prophet and he says, I have a promise for you, my people. I'm going to come and transform you as a people. And here's what I'm about to do to you. I'm going to take your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. See, God is not promising to turn old wine into new wine, but water into wine. And therefore, what Jesus says to Nicodemus at one point, that it's necessary that you be born again, really reflects the idea that we're talking here about. God does not desire that you would experience some sort of moral reformation, that you will uh, apply better principles and rules to follow in your life so you, you experience a better version of you, but you would experience a new life altogether. In the cover of your bulletin, I don't know if you noticed, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis 
um, one of my favorite Christian writers, and in his famous book, Mere Christianity, if you've never had a chance to read Mere Christianity, I would encourage you to pick up a copy or download it and read it. He talks about this idea. He says, a, a world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not redemption. You get this? For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people even here and now and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. You get this? God wants to promote change in your life. Um, here's an image for you to think about to illustrate this point. Uh, think of a bent rebar. There are two ways that you can unbend a bent rebar. You can apply enough power and strength to it. And with enough strength and power, maybe some of you are strong enough to do that, you will unbend the rebar. But if you keep doing that at the place where the rebar was bent, Instead of becoming stronger, it will become weaker and weaker and weaker. Another way to unbend the rebar is to put it under intense heat, and it will melt from the inside, and now you're able to form anything you want to with that piece of metal. You can straighten it up. You can do whatever you want to. That is what the gospel is promoting in our lives, an inside-out change, not an outside-in change. Some of you have experienced what we're talking about here tonight, and some of you, I would think, are in need of experiencing that. And that is my encouragement, that you would stay open to that which God wants to do in your life, maybe starting tonight. And as we think about this vision that uh, the gospel casts for our lives, we must think of this power that God exerts on us in order to promote this transformation, right? So we talked about gospel vision going now into gospel power. Uh, in verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul says this to the church. Let's look back to verses 1 through 4. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... Christ will be of no advantage to you. Let's stop right there just for a second. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, if you who have received this new freedom in Christ, who have now positionally been changed from a slave to a child of God, submit yourself once again to a religious structure and a religious system, Christ will no longer be of avail to you. What is he saying? He's saying, if you know the right you need to do, if you know the good you need to do, why would you need a Savior? The reason why Christ has come into the world precisely is because we cannot fulfill the demands of any law, much less the moral law that is uh, exemplified in the Ten Commandments. And so the reason why Christ comes is because we cannot fulfill it ourselves. He comes to fulfill it on our behalf. So if you're going about your life trying to live a moral life according to the law, why would you need a Savior to begin with? And he continues in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision 
that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. What the Apostle Paul here is reminding them is the way and the power that has come into their life to change them. It has not been a power that they've been able to tap within themselves. It has not been a result of their uh, will to discipline themselves to live a life according to the standard of perfection that the law exemplifies, but it has been a power that has come into their life by grace. It did not depend on them. He's drawing here the distinction between how religion proposes to change you by tapping into the power that is within versus the gospel. See, religion points to the power within while the gospel points to the power beyond ourselves. You know, all the books that are filling the shelves of the bookstores today, all the videos, all the motivational videos that are filling our YouTube channels, all of the motivational talks that are out there that speak on this topic of change, there is one thing in common in all of those, and that is that if you want to change, you must tap into this power that exists within you. I was um, watching uh, this interview by Bradley Whitford. He's an American actor. Um, he plays a big role in the West Wing, if you are familiar with the West Wing or if you watch the West Wing. And he was speaking on this topic of change. And as he's speaking on this topic of change, this is what he says. Infuse your life with action. Don't wait for it to happen. Make it happen. Make your own future. Make your own hope. Make your own love. And whatever your beliefs, honor your creator, not by passively waiting for grace to come down from upon high, but by doing what you can to make grace happen yourself right now, right down here on earth. What is he saying? He's saying, don't wait for God to come into your life and to change things. You must change things yourself. Now, I get where he's coming from. He's speaking to people that lack a motivation for change, that need to change but lack a motivation for change. So he's at, in their face, you know, trying to say, hey, you got to make it happen. But those of us, think about this. You know, you take a talk like that and you take a uh, uh, this narrative, and you apply it in your life. And those of you who have tried that long enough, you know that it doesn't work, right? When you will yourself to change, and you're saying, I'm going to muster all the strength that's within me to promote this change into my life, it doesn't work. It, it only takes a week, a month, maybe a year, and then all of a sudden you're dropping back into your own ways. Because no one is strong enough. No one can, think about this, no one can consistently live up to the standards that they even set for themselves and others. We are inconsistent. And therefore, if there's any hope for us, the Apostle Paul is saying, it has to come from the outside. It has to come beyond ourselves. See, this transformation that the gospel brings in the person of Jesus Christ is a gift from God to us. Do you remember the conversation that once Jesus had with the woman at the well? He's going into this Samaritan territory. It's hostile territory for the Jewish people in the middle of the day. And he finds this woman there um, drawing water uh, for, her, for her flock. And she was going at that time because she was a woman of no reputation. The normal time for people to go to draw water would be in the morning. And so here she is, and Jesus has this encounter with her, and with her, and he asked her for water, and they began 
this dialogue that starts with, hey, dude, this is inappropriate, don't you know? You're a man and you're a Jewish man and you're speaking to me at this time in public, a Samaritan woman. And they start this uh, discussion on places of worship because uh, we all know uh, the life that she lived. And for her, what she is talking to Jesus is that if you worship God correctly, there is hope. And what Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter the place where you end up worshiping God and the way in which you worship God. Because the true change that has come into the world is right here, a woman talking to you. And he says to her, if you only knew the gift of God, it's not something that you can do, but it's something that you receive. And think about this, if, if, if transformation, this transformation, this powerful transformation that we're talking about here depended on our own ability to change, if we could muster the power from within, then this change would only be available for the strong, right? The ones that could discipline themselves, the one who would be up the moral and, and, and social ladder. But the transformation that Jesus has ushered into the world is for everyone, especially the weak. And so for us here tonight that are not happy with our lives and not happy where things are going and not happy with our purpose and our meaning, I want to tell you that there is hope and this power that can come into your life and transform you so that you can experience joy and purpose and meaning is available to you through Jesus Christ. It's a power that comes from the outside and you can rest you don't need to be trying hard so much anymore. It's here. So, great. How does now this uh, power that comes into my life bring about change? What does the process look like? So, the gospel has a different aim than religion, right? When the gospel is promoting change in our life, it promotes it different than religion. See, religion aims at the will to conform the will so that our behavior is modified, our behavior is changed, while the gospel aims at the heart. Look at what Paul says there in verse 6. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything. It doesn't matter what you do or what you fail to do. But, but... Only faith working through love. What is he saying here? He's saying here that the only thing that matters is what God thinks of you. The perception that God thinks of you, the truth that God speaks into you, that is what matters. If you fail any requirements, God will not love you any less and if you perform well, God will not love you anymore. It's the love of God. It's the love of God that transforms your life. It transforms from the inside out. It's a different approach. It's not an outside-in approach, but it's an inside-out approach. Obviously, if you try to modify your outside, your behavior, very, uh, very seldomly will your heart change. This is what C.S. Lewis is explaining in that quote. But if the heart is transformed, eventually, obviously, there will be change to show forth. And the question becomes now, then how does God 
transform our hearts. It's right there in verse 5. It's through the work of the Spirit. He says, through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The Spirit comes into our hearts and unveils to us the truth of the gospel. In other words, the Holy Spirit reveals to us how much we are loved by God. See, it's very hard for human beings to believe that they are utterly loved by God. This is the litmus test, whether you're a Christian or not, is if you believe without a reasonable doubt that the Creator God loves you in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit unveils that truth and unpacks that truth for us. It allows you to understand that you are loved by God. And the way the Spirit does that is by revealing the work of the gospel on the cross. On the cross, God's love is demonstrated to us in a way that it becomes unquestionable. On the cross, Jesus fulfills not only the perfect demand uh, of the law on our behalf, but he does the back work, which is to pay for the penalty of our failure to fulfill the law. And therefore, no one can look at the cross and question God's love for them. How could you question God's love for you when you look at Jesus on the cross? See, when you understand this, when you, when you understand this, this transforms your heart. Because you understand that God loves you without a reasonable doubt. Now, love is the only power. You know, think about that rebar. Love is the only power that can truly transform us. I was a very difficult teenager. I don't know if you've heard my story. I was a very difficult teenager. I gave my parents all sorts of problems. And I remember uh, one day uh, in my freshman year of high school, I did something really bad, really bad. I'm not going to tell you the story. I'll tell you later. I want to freak you out. It's like I don't want to hear from this pastor. Um, but but I, I, did, I did something pretty bad, and my parents were called into the school. And, um, you know, obviously they were really disappointed. You know, I, I, you know, gave them a lot of problems in school, but this one was, this one was pretty serious. And I, I remember uh, going home. And uh, when I walked into my house after school, my parents went, went home earlier and then, I, then came later. And when I walked into the living room, I could hear these sobbing noises in my parents' bedroom. And then I walked in and peeked in through the through the door, through the opening of the door, and my mom was on her knees, kneeling on her bed, and she was bawling before God. She says, God, we've tried everything. We love this child. We love you. We need you to interfere. My mom was bawling. She was bawling. And, you know, it's interesting because my parents, they loved me. They loved me as well. They disciplined me. I remember that. Uh, there were serious restrictions placed on my freedom all throughout my teenage years, but it didn't work. It didn't change me. All the rules and all the discipline didn't really change me. What really, really changed me was to fully come to an understanding that what I was doing was breaking my mom's heart and that she truly, truly loved me. When you understand that not only your sin breaks God's heart, but you see the sacrifice that he was willing to pay in order to transform you, that changes you from the inside. And it changes the motivation by which you do everything in life. This is what he means. This is what he means, faith working itself out through love. 
See, when we look into a crowd like this, there are good people everywhere. And I would assume that a lot of you guys are great people. And, uh, but, you know, there are two different motivations amongst us for doing good. There are those here tonight that are doing good to get the love of God into their lives, to get God to answer their prayers, to get God to open doors for them, to show favor to them, to impress others. All right, I'm going to go to the service project next week because what is my community group going to think if I don't show up? Oh, so I have this uh, promotion that I've been really working hard towards. How would I expect God to bless me if I don't show up to church tonight? You hear what I'm saying? Oh, the reason why I have been a single person beyond uh, the, the, the season that I desired for my life is because I'm an, I've been unfaithful in my relationship with God. And what that reveals is that the reason why we're doing all these things is out of a motivation of fear of missing out and of being punished or out of guilt. But then there are those here tonight that are doing the same things, not out of fear, not out of guilt, but out of love because they know how much they've been loved in Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the old British preacher, told a story, story to illustrate that uh, back in the 1800s. It's a story of a peasant and a nobleman. How many of you heard this story? I, I bring it here at Crossbridge every once in a while. Um, so he says that, you know, in this kingdom there was this peasant. He was a farmer. Sorry, he was a farmer. And uh, at the end of his harvest... He harvested, harvested this beautiful carrot. It was a juicy carrot. It was his biggest and uh, best carrot. And he decides to take that carrot to his king. And he says to his king, he says, Oh, sovereign Lord, out of my loyalty and appreciation for you, I'd like to gift you my best carrot from this year's harvest. And the king looks at that. You know, it's just a carrot, but he is profoundly moved by that gesture. And he says, I want you to be a a bigger farmer, a better farmer. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you more land. Well, there was a nobleman that was watching all of that, and he thought to himself, if this, if this peasant gave the king a carrot and got more land in return, what will the king give me if I give him one of my best horses? So he shows up the next day with this beautiful stallion, and he uh, walks this horse up to his king, and he says, Oh, sovereign, out of my loyalty and appreciation for you, I am giving you one of my best horses. And the king looks at him, discerns his heart right away, and says, thank you very much, takes the horse and leaves. As the king turns around and is walking away, he says, oh, sovereign, can I ask you a question? He says, very well. He says, I'm troubled here. Help me to understand yesterday this peasant gave you a carrot, and you rewarded him with more land. I give you one of my best horses, and you say, thank you very much, and you give me nothing in return. And he says, oh, here's what I want you to understand. He gave me his carrot. You are giving yourself the horse. There are people, think about this, because you know this experience hits close to home to many of us. There are people that have given themselves gifts to you, right? All the words of affirmation that you have received was not really for you. It was for them in the end. 
all the gifts that you receive were, were not in the end for you because they loved you. They thought you were beautiful, but they saw you as useful. And when you find out when that is the case, it, it, it breaks your heart because you feel used, you feel manipulated. Yet many of us relate to God in that fashion. We don't go to God because he's beautiful. We go to God because he's useful. See, the gospel changes that motivation in our hearts, that motivation that is transformed from fear and guilt into love. And here's how you know that your heart has truly been transformed by the gospel. It produces fruit. It produces fruit. From verses 13 into the end of the chapter, the apostle Paul contrasts the fruit that the flesh produces and the fruit that the spirit produces in us, the gospel fruit in our lives. And what's interesting about the fruit that the Spirit produces in us, this gospel fruit in our lives, those of us who have experienced this transformation from within, is it's not that, you know, the people that have been transformed by the power of the gospel are now busier for God. They are doing bigger things for God. It's not that. Because when you read the characteristics of this fruit, in uh, verse 22, you read that this fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are not outward attributes and qualities that people in our achievement culture would applaud. But these are internal attributes that the Spirit produces in us, which in essence boils down to two things. A greater love for God and a greater love for people. See, in verse 13, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He goes and he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So what he's saying here is that people that have experienced this transformation, they're not looking at the grace of God pouring out lavishly over their lives and saying, Oh, I've been forgiven for all my sins. God has loved me so much on the cross. Now I can go on living whatever life I want to. He says, If that is the posture that you have, you haven't been transformed by the power of the gospel in the first place. Because the people that have been transformed by the power of the gospel, the people that this fruit is coming into fruition in their life, this fruit that is growing in their lives, their life is characterized by a love of God. And love for God is mostly portrayed in obedience to God. What did Jesus say? Do you want to know if you love me or not? Just ask yourself, are you obeying me? See, many of us come to God and say, God, this is my will. Will you conform your will to my will, right? People that have been transformed by the power of the gospel are going to God and says, God, I want to conform my will to your will. And sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's hard, but that's a characteristic, and that's part of the fruit that's growing inside someone that has experienced this gospel transformation. There's a desire for obedience. There's a desire. There's an increased desire for worship not only corporately on a weekly basis, but individually on a daily basis. There's a thirst for God, like the psalmist in Psalm 42 says, you know, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Do you see this increasing in your life? Secondly, love for others. In verse 14, and I'm going to close with verse 14, he says this, the whole law, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. People that have experienced this transformation, they have indeed received a new heart. See, like I said, the gospel is the only power that can turn a heart that's bent in on itself outwardly. 
And when a heart is turned outwardly, it is not only more concerned about the things of God, but the people that God has created. There is an immense desire in you to meet the needs of others. There is an immense desire in you, an immense ability in you to forgive. See, before Christ, it was very hard for you to forgive. But because you've been reminded of how much you have been forgiven, it's easier for you to extend forgiveness to others. There's more generosity to show forth in your life. Before, it was very hard to give, to write that check, to meet someone's need, or to come alongside someone and pay their bills. It was so, so difficult and hard. It took a lot of guilt and a, a lot of shame and a lot of fear for you to do that. But now there's joy and generosity. Now there's joy and sharing the gospel, and sharing Jesus with others. Before, it was very difficult. You were afraid. What are people going to think of me? I don't want them to think that I'm annoying. I don't want to lose friends. But because you really, really love people, and you see that their life truly matters, and that the gospel is truly powerful to change their life, there's no inhibition in you to share the gospel of Jesus with people as well. Anyhow, I expect that this last point was sort of function as a test for you as you think about has my heart been transformed by the power of the gospel? Has my heart experienced the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ in my life? And have I embraced the vision that the gospel is casting for my life? I hope that you will, and I hope that you would be changed. Maybe even tonight. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are grateful for what Jesus Christ has done, of his transforming power. And Father, we, um, some of us are so tired of trying to force us, ourselves to change. And uh, Father, we are ashamed because we have failed ourselves. We had failed the plan. We had failed the system. We have. And therefore, I want you to reveal to those of us that feel this way tonight the need for a Savior. That we would have a saving relationship with you and that you would truly liberate us because for freedom Christ has set us free. And Father, we wanna, don't want to subject ourselves to any other law except submitting ourselves to the love of Christ. Now, Father, prepare our hearts as we go into a holy week and tonight as we approach your table. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.